Welcome back to Dateline New Haven and WNHH New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines and the stories that make our community tick. This is a fun one. The lead up to this episode of Dateline, I got to read a really fun book that took me into places I never thought I'd be before. Written by someone who grew up around here. He's now in L.A. She writes and directs for shows like Blackish, Happy Endings, Ugly Betty, Grace and Frankie. She's a Peabody Award winner. Her name is Gail Lerner. And she has a new novel out that I really recommend called The Big Dreams of Small Creatures, published by um, Paulson Books, an uh, imprint of Penguin Random House. Welcome to Dateline New Haven, Gail Lerner. So hey, nice to see morning, you. Hey, good morning, Paul. And are you in Thanks L.A., so right? Thanks for having me. Yes, I am. I've been here since 97. 97, but you grew up around here. Yep, I grew up in Woodbridge, and I went to Hopkins. Okay. And um and your new book, this new novel, which is it a, technically a young adult novel? Is that the category? It's actually middle grade. It's more designed for second through sixth grade. Second through sixth. Well, it's kind of written for smart second through sixth graders. There's a lot of complicated <laughs> ideas. I found that uh, second graders really like having it as a read aloud. Like by oh, their okay. Yeah. All right, and and this is a real departure for you, Gail. As I said, you're you're there in L.A. writing and directing for TV, and all of a sudden you're writing a first novel. What, what led you to do this? Well, it's actually been something I've been wanting to write since I was literally 10 years old, going to Ezra Academy in Woodbridge. Oh, you went to Ezra? My kids and, went there. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I was just there doing a reading, actually. It was really fun to go back. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And to find that basically nothing has changed. Like, it was the <laughs> same sukkah and the same paper chains. It was incredible. Um, Did you sleep out in the I, sukkah? When you were there? I didn't. I just peeped inside. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But basically, I'd been wanting to write this ever since I was 10. I had a wonderful teacher at Ezra who, at the end of every English class, would read one chapter from Charlotte's Web or James and the Giant Peach. And at the end of every chapter, we would say, one more chapter, one more chapter. And I said that every night when my parents would read to me before bed. I grew up in a big household of readers. And I just thought, even at 10, I want to write the books that make kids say one more chapter. It seems mm. so exciting to me. And then I got uh, distracted, I would say, by uh, film and television, and I always loved it. And then one day I looked at my watch and said, I'm 40. If I'm writing this book, I better get on it. You're only 40? And that was about 10 years ago. Okay. Okay, you're a much younger sister then. Yes. Okay. So in this book, it's two kids, they're 10 and 9, who stumble across an underground world of insects and humans plotting to understand each other, speaking the other language, save the planet. And that one of the kids wants to kill all the insects. And a girl named Eden, who's 10, who she patterned after you. She, we, the after book, my daughter. Okay, after the, the book, she, it opens in Edgerton Park. And yeah, she's up yeah. in the trees. She loves the trees. She's a really smart kid um, who knows a lot about nature already and learns she can start to communicate with a wasp. And that starts her on this whole, this whole journey. How did this, we, we, so this is about your daughter, was, did she like to climb trees in Edgerton Park? How did, how did that character come across yeah. of Eden? Well, we, uh, she grew up in Los Angeles, so she was climbing trees in Griffith Park, um, mm-hmm. but it wasn't that big a stretch to put her back in Connecticut. I was never as brave and intrepid as she was. I was more of a... Me too. I didn't want to fall down. I watched the ants on the, the, the logs that fell. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Exactly. Um, and she loved climbing trees. And when she was 10, she loved science, science and was determined to be a scientist. And so I was really thinking of her when I created the character. But I was also a big reader and a bit of a loner. So, you know, it 
it was really a hybrid of both of us. Well, that's kind of why I think this book has a lot of um, resonance for a lot of us. So if my kids were still little, I'd love to get it and read it to them because a lot of us feel like we were that person who's alone or isn't understood. We love to look at, you know, relate to nature before we get too old and get jaded. So I think you kind of have a, a big potential pool here, right? But you still so is a book oh, you always you. wanted to write, and then 10 years ago you decided to write it. Did it take you 10 years to write? It did. It did. You know, I was busy being a mom and being married and writing and directing, and it was just something that um, when I picked it up, I was really doing it as a hobby, and really writing catch as catch can an hour here and an hour there. So it just took a you have to bear, But it's not a hobby. I mean, it's, it's hard work, especially writing fiction, because it has to be truer than nonfiction, right? you got to believe it. Once you suspend disbelief that there's this world where the animals are talking to each other. Completely. I just mean that normally I'm always writing on deadline. I'm taking other people's notes. My writing is always accountable to production, which is thrilling and I love it. But this was my first time writing prose and writing for myself. There was no one waiting for this. People didn't even know I was writing it. And in that way, I mean... I was an amateur in the absolute best way. I was just doing it for love. Did there come to a point? Did there come a point where you had to say, "Now I have to give myself a deadline. Now I got to really throw down and make this work, and I have to push Blackish and Will and Grace to the side for seven months"? I mean, how'd that happen? Well, built into a TV schedule, you have two months off a year. Um, well, it's, it's called a hiatus. And basically, I had been writing slowly. And then um, when the pandemic happened, that actually coincided. My older sister, Betsy, who has been on your show, who's an amazing author. And she was just, you know, she was my agent for a book I wrote, and she's a miracle worker, right? Yeah, she really is. Um, and she was just so encouraging and introduced me to Sarah Burns, who eventually became my agent. And Sarah was someone who said, I see potential in this, but it's not close to what it needs to be. And right then it happened to be the pandemic, and I thought, time to dig in and treat this mm. full-time. I have full-time now. And were they not and shooting so, the TV shows for a while? That was the idea. Wasn't there a no. year in which? Yeah. yeah, we were down for a year. Okay, so but you made use of the time to fulfill a dream you had. Yeah. All right. We're talking to Gail Lerner. She has a new book out. It's, it's aimed at second to sixth graders, but you don't have to be a radio interview to find an excuse to read it, because it really has to do with how we interact with the insect world the animal world in terms of the future of our planet and even who we are as creatures and whose planet this is it's called the big dreams of small creatures so i'm assuming sounds from hearing from you that was very hard to make that pivot so one thing i noticed i was thinking a lot when i read this book Gail, about how you do write for tv and uh, and movies because it's really the scenes are really set out like each scene has kind of a little cliffhanger leading to the rest. You have two main characters who's so much around who are very rich characters on whom you pin all the action. It's very much a showing, not telling book where things happen to make your points and a whole set of, of supporting characters. Tell me about that. How did you make that pivot and in what ways did you bring what you learned from TV writing to novel writing? Well, one thing that really happens when you're writing and directing actors um, as opposed to writing prose is that you really learn economy action yeah and you you really learn about speaking to actors helping them understand the emotional life of the character me as a writer and director understanding emotional life and i just it's still so close in my mind the feelings of being a child the feelings of being powerless wishing i were a grown-up you know, I think there's a reference in the book to being mystified about why grownups love talking about doctor appointments, you know, things like that, that were really fun to access that 
let me kind of um, embrace and indulge and speak to all my childhood thoughts. Did you, how many drafts did you have to do to get it to where it worked in this format? Oh, boy. I'd say maybe nine. Nine drafts. And, and how many of those were during everyone. the pandemic? Um, maybe three. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then how, so you got us inside the heads of kids and insects. And I always wonder about that too, for people do, especially TVs and shows and movies, you don't have the, whenever you bring a book to the screen, it's hard to have that freedom to get inside a head and just describe what's going through people's thoughts, unless you use a technique like, you know, a, a disembodied voice that goes to thought. How did you do that? Because in this book, you really do go deeply into what the kids are thinking as they speak to insects what was that difference how do you do that differently in tv and movies well it's it's interesting in tv it's really about subtext and unless you're telling a joke where you have to be very straightforward and that joke has an engine and a beginning middle and punchline um you're really trying to not tell the emotional story in the dialogue but kind of tell it under the dialogue and in the book it was the exact opposite i got to really embrace what the kids were thinking about and i know um several people have said that that's unusual in a children's book and my agent my editor who's wonderful kept saying this book is a case study in suspension of disbelief and i just kept thinking everyone is doing such outlandish things i'm trying to get you to believe that a wasp queen can talk and understand humans i'm trying to get you to understand why, well, one of my main characters does a pretty elaborate stunt to make his point. And I But just there's a thought, whole world underground in Newport, Rhode Island, a mansion that built underground by these two humans, including a hundred twenty year old woman who's still active and running the show, about how you have an yeah. institute so that insects and humans can converse with each other and save the planet. Yeah. Exactly. So it's why I felt like I really need to take the reader inside the heads of these characters so they understand and believe why everyone is doing these fantastical things. And then what's going to happen? I assume you're going to bring this to the screen. Is it going to be some kind of TV miniseries or what's going to happen then? I'm hoping it'll be a film. I'm just now. You'd rather have a film be. And then, I mean, I don't see how it can't be. I mean, to tell you the truth, I mean, <laughs> so you. you already got it. It's blocked out. But what I'm wondering when I think about that transition is what are you going to do about the inner thinking, the inner lives of these characters whom you whom you showed us by what they're thinking. What what's gonna be done in when you make that transition to going back to what you're used to writing? Oh, that is the million dollar question. Um, it's so important to me to preserve that. And I think in some cases, you know, Eden uh, has many confidants. You know, she has the wasp, she has an aunt, she has a lot of characters she can talk to and reveal her feelings. The character of August, uh, the other main character is so much of a loner, so much of his journey is internal that I'm thinking about flashbacks mainly. Um, and, and you kind of set that up right at the beginning. August is mad at the insects because a, a bug goes on him when he's acting in a play and he gets all embarrassed and then you know he drops all the food in the basement because of another bug and he wants to wipe out all the bugs on earth, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly, I think we can um, show those things so actively that hopefully the actions also speak to the emotion. Mm-hmm. And we're speaking to Gail Lerner, author of The Big Dreams of Small Creatures. If you got a kid who's second to, second to sixth grade, you're going to have so much fun reading them a chapter after night, a chapter a night when they go to bed and then telling them they're going to have to wait till the next night for the next chapter. Gail grew up here. She starts the book in Edgerton Park and then takes it from there. 
So you, you actually brought up something I wanted to ask you about was the suspension of disbelief. So I've always felt mm -hmm. like I, I, I stink at trying to write fiction. I've tried it a bunch of times. I write new stuff. And the reason I conclude is that fiction is harder than nonfiction because it has to be truer. That you have the suspension of disbelief. You set up something that isn't true like or that may not be true right now that you have to get someone to say, okay, I'm going to assume when I read Gail's book that there can be a conversation between this girl and this wasp. I'm going to assume when I read Gail's book that somehow these 10-year-old, this 9-year-old find their ways to Rhode Island underground and have these climactic scenes. But once you do that, once you get people to suspend their disbelief of the premise, you have to get them to believe that every part after that is quote-unquote true. That if it were true that this situation, this premise could exist, this is what they would say. This is what they would do. You know, August the boy would be able to get some friends he, he never really hung out with before who were other loners to come with him underground to try to, you know, take over the place. That mm -hmm. this girl would be able to find reservoirs of strength to... Uh, overcome the obstacles how do you do that how do you make it true and again how did you tackle that as your first time novel after a career in film and tv um for me i just really immerse myself in the fiction of it i just really put myself in the body of the characters which to me is a lot like directing i'm sort of both the author and the actor and no matter how fanciful or preposterous the situation i just say what would I really do right now? How could I really accomplish this? How would I really feel? And as long as I'm staying in tune with how I feel and what how what I would do, it becomes apparent to me what the characters would do and should do. Okay, so I think there was a secret goal behind this book. Mm -hmm. My real agenda in getting you on the radio today is I want to report you to the banned books movement because I think you're trying oh, okay, to do great. I think you're trying to do something dangerous with this book. You tell a really engrossing story. It's fun. It's interesting. We can all relate to it. But there's an agenda here, I believe. I think you want us to think differently about how we view the world around us, kids and adults, and how we deal yeah. with our planet and how we deal with animals. I, I, was a, did you happen to see, I almost sent it to you, Farhad Manju's column November 18th, Who Runs the World Ants? He pointed out that there are at least 20 quadrillion ants in the world on Earth compared to 2.5. It's 2.5 million ants for every person. And then there was another story right around there in the Times, the science section about how ants have been around for 140 million years. They're ecosystem engineers. They kind of invented stuff that we thought we invented from farming to architecture to democracy. Mm -hmm. Is that part of your secret agenda here? Should we report you to the rising um, Know Nothing Right <laughs> to make sure that this book isn't read yeah. in schools? Because what's your agenda? Well, my big agenda, I guess if you could call it that, though there's like a a saying in TV, a cliche, an aphorism, whatever you will, uh, that's like, if you want to send a message, call Western Union, that, you know, entertainment is no place for messages. So mm. I kind of hope to sneak my message in there. Um, and But I do find what's amazing is that insects who are so tiny, who barely have what we would consider brains, they communicate they work together they accomplish these amazing things and feats of collaboration and community that humans who i think most humans would think of course we're superior to ants can't even manage and that notion that um there are creatures who we think oh if only they were gone are actually the key lifeblood of the planet um really inspires and interests me and i think that part of the reason our society is collapsing right now is that we've forgotten empathy and this book mm. is really about creating empathy. And it's interesting talking to you about suspension of disbelief, because at first, 
it was sort of a, a magical happenstance that Eden and the Wasp could talk. And my wonderful editor, Stacey Barney, said, I don't believe it. What is the mechanism? What makes Eden and the Queen able to talk? And it was draft after draft and thinking and thinking where I finally thought, oh, empathy. Empathy is the mechanism. And then also some physical skill, because even though the book is fantastical, I wanted kids to come away thinking, we each have a skill. And if we bring our skill and our empathy, mm. we can do anything. And so that was really exciting. And a lot of us through the pandemic read the overstory and got new appreciation for the way that not just trees, but fungi underneath the trees communicate with each yes. other from very large distances. And that kind of blew my mind. And so, yes. so did this change at all when you were in this, how you live? Did you uh, do squash bugs in your house? Did it change your thinking? Or are you already thinking that 10 years ago and saying, I want to write this book for kids to help them be more empathetic. I was always intrigued by when people would say, oh, that bug is more scared of you than you are of it. And just that notion of how are those bugs feeling and just think really thinking from their point of view. You know, the book has four narrators, a girl, a boy, a wasp queen, and an ant. And I just loved thinking, like, what is their point of view? How do they think mm. of us? And so that uh, also just really excited me and interested me. I mean, you talked about Adam, who's the aunt, one of the heroes, and his older sister, Dot. And um, you mentioned in the, in the notes at the end that you patted them after your two children. Yeah. Do you want to tell something about that? How, that, how you, why and how? Sure. Um, well, the, the first part of it is that um, at first, actually, Adam and Dot were married. And oh. they had the same dynamic, but they were married. And my agent uh, said to me, kids don't care about marriage. Mm. I thought, wow, that is really true. And so she said, I love the relationship. I love that the aunts are, um, you know, main characters and narrators. But can you make a dynamic that kids care about? And I just thought right away, brother and sister. And I actually have to say that you are a very brave person because most people are very afraid to talk to me about my children. And my terrible story is that my teenagers, Ruby, who was 17, and Hart, who was 14, were killed by a drunk driver when we were on a family road trip. And my husband and I were actually there. And it has been obviously completely devastating. And we felt that we were shattered and then had to find pieces of the vase that we used to be to build ourselves back up. Um, but we're not the same people and we are new creations as it were. And so um, <clears throat> the kids had died in 2019 and conventional wisdom says after a year, you start to feel better. Um, but then kind of deeper science says um, if it's multiple deaths, if it's a child, if it's sudden, if it's violent, it's actually two years. You need two years to do that grief work. And then the pandemic happened and not that I'm pro pandemic, but my husband and I really thought we are not ready to live in society. And we almost felt like we got this private year of grief and we spent it out in Joshua tree so we could be away from crowds. And so it was actually right at the beginning of the pandemic when Sarah said, can you come up with a different relationship? Mm. And that's when I thought, here's my chance to be with Ruby and Hart. Um, you know, Eden is based on Ruby August is based on Hart, who was not a villain, but who was an actor and loved melodrama and loved committing to a part more than your average 
13-year-old, uh, 14-year-old. Um, but I just got to show their relationship in Adam and Dot. And that was my way of feeling connected to them and, and keeping them alive in the world. I have to say, it, I mean, just on a pure literary level, that really brings the book home. They're not oh, the two main yeah. characters, but when they emerge, it's sort of what's going to make the story mm -hmm. come together and have an ending we believe in and care about. They really do. That's a very moving story. I mean, as a parent, oh, obviously, you. I can't even imagine how your life changes. You talked about how it's a year, and then it's two years. I don't believe, at least in your tradition of Kaddish, it's not that you're ready to move on after a year. It's that it's gradually after, in that first year, you emerge back into society as you mentioned you're not the same person it's changed forever but you try it, it's after a year when you can kind of function again at, mm -hmm. at a full level and you're saying it's two years with children do you feel you the book and helped I, you get I think there that our notion of what functioning is really changes um you know my husband says sometimes our hearts are broken but they still work and that notion of being broken but still working um helps me kind of get through the day. And, you know, we, we think a lot about the writings of Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor, who became a psychologist and gave an amazing series of lectures. Um, and it's really all about finding meaning and purpose and having that be what gives you the strength to move forward. But I really have to say, Paul, like I, I want to give you a shout out for like daring to bring up the kids. There's, such a taboo about grief and talking about grief and many close friends don't talk to me about Ruby and Hart. So I really appreciate you giving That's me That's because it's on our end. We can't that. imagine what that would be like. Right. It's almost like a guilt. We haven't been through that, you know? That's yeah. an interesting way of thinking. And it's about interesting it. what you say yeah. about meaning and purpose, because I would argue that's interesting. You say that's one way to move heart, keep your heart working and a reason to live. I think that's kind of a reason to live period. Mm -hmm. And maybe sometimes tragedy focuses on, on what it means to live and how to live. I'm not sure. but I, I think so. I think the meaning and purpose are very important ideally in a life. But I think that if you're lucky enough to have food and shelter, you can really just sort of enjoy your loved ones and enjoy your world. And, of course, we're hoping that everyone is active in politics and everyone is active about caring about their community and homelessness. But I think after you've suffered a big tragedy, um, you need that. You need a reason to engage in the world because otherwise, you know, there's um, there's a, the actor and clown Bill Irwin did a one-man show about Beckett. And he talks about how those characters go toe-to-toe -to -toe with despair every day. And I heard that and I just thought, yes, that's us. Well, um, I think it's a testament to, to what a professional that. you are and a skilled writer that Adam and Dot, pattern after your kids, are just these wonderfully fun characters. It's just a great story, and they're funny. I mean, the book is funny. It's got a serious message, yeah. but it's fun and funny, and there's really no alternative to yeah, show the you. wonder of the world in a way we'll read it. So, Gail Lerner, I hope that everybody who hears this or reads this when we embed it in The Independent next week picks up The Big Dreams of Small Creatures. I hope it becomes a blockbuster movie. I know I will go watch it with my grandkids. Any upcoming events oh, with the book? Um, I've mainly been doing a lot of school readings, which I love. I love reading to kids. I love when they say one more chapter at the end. I mean, it's so gratifying. And I'm trying to do a big mix of reading at um, public schools, private schools, and underprivileged Title I schools. And actually, that's my goal, is to create a foundation 
where when I go into Title I schools that I, I have donors who give me enough books that every child gets their own book. And I had that experience in two schools now, and it's so gratifying. All right. Gail Lerner, new chapter in her book. One more chapter after TV and uh, films and Golden Globe and Emmy and Peabody nominations and awards. Has a really terrific novel for people of all ages. The Big Dreams of Small Creatures. Thanks for joining us, Gail. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to Harry Drost, the... Uh, producer gets us on more multiverses than a hit movie could even capture in all the platforms of Dateline New Haven. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. <laughs>